Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is David Giltner, and he's done quite a number of things. He's done engineering, he's done marketing, he's done sales, he's done quite a bit in the industry. And I'm really interested to learn more about his current venture, Turning Science, which helps scientists and engineers build careers in industry. And of course, We'll talk about public speaking because, well, as, as you all know, that's kind of what we do here. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, David. Thank you, Neil. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, same here. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your undergrad degree in physics. What was that's the right. motivation to do that? You know, I guess I just always enjoyed science. If I look back, I, I enjoyed how things work. And science was kind of the ultimate how things work, uh, especially the physical sciences, really looking at how the universe works. And I just, uh, it, it came relatively easily for me, but I also just found it so fascinating to learn how, how uh, you know, how the universe works and, and learn about that. That's what got me started in physics. Physics is probably one of the more difficult, I guess, sciences to, to get into, but you didn't just start there, stop there. You got a PhD in it too. What was the motivation for the PhD? Well, it felt like in physics, uh, you know, the, there, if I wanted to have a career, I really, you become a scientist. That's the main thing you would do. And so, uh, to do that, you, to become a professor and a research scientist, you need a PhD. So it seemed like a natural progression, uh, to go on and just, you know, finish the whole thing and get the PhD. So when you got your PhD, the plan was to go into academia? Yeah, that's what I figured I would do. It wasn't so much that I really wanted to be an academic researcher. It was just that, uh, that's kind of the natural progression. I mean, I, one of the things I think a lot about these days is how do we end up in our career paths, at least the initial trajectory. And for a lot of us, I think it really just comes from the courses that we find valuable, we find interesting, or our major. We just kind of assume, well, if there's a major in a certain field, there must be jobs out at the end of that. And as a scientist in physics, it just seemed like the natural progression was to become a researcher. Uh, obviously, I changed that path later on, but that's initially what I was thinking. So, so when you did finish that PhD, you did work in, in academia, or did you go into industry right away? I went into industry right away. I actually decided to change to industry about the last year of my PhD. So it was about six and a half years getting that after my bachelor's. And for the first five, six, five years or so, I just assumed I would be a professor. But it was really in that last year of my PhD, I just decided, you know, academia probably wasn't for me. And frankly, a lot of it was from being in that environment in graduate school and looking around at my advisor and the other professors and thinking, I don't think this is really the career that I want. You know, it may have been the default for scientists, but it's not what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of uh, your, your situation is pretty typical. I've spoken to other people who did PhDs as well. When they started their programs, there that was that was the goal was to get a, an academic and probably a tenure track position. But 
I think a lot of the times what ends up happening is the, the, the when people finally do graduate or even maybe shortly before, they start to realize that perhaps there aren't as many jobs available in academia as there are people graduating with the degrees. So you may very well want a tenure track position, but if there aren't any being offered, then what are you supposed to do? That's absolutely true. I think that's true in every discipline. Uh, you know, I always, as a physicist, we learn to do simple estimates of things. And I always think of that exact problem this way. How many PhDs does a typical university professor graduate? Well, let's say an average of about 10 for the sake of argument. MIT, for example, says it's on the average of 10. Well, then how many of those PhDs does it require to replace that professor when they retire? Well, only one. That's 10%. You know, you don't have to do a lot of statistics and collect a lot of data to realize, oh, it's not a very large fraction that will become professors. <laughs> right there, you realize that. And you're absolutely right. And so many people end up realizing, gee, I can't do that. Uh, there's just not enough jobs. Uh, it's competitive. Um, but then many of us also realize that's actually not what we wanted in the first place. And that was more my situation, even though there were a few jobs. I just decided I didn't that's not really what I wanted. As you, as you get further on, you uh, maybe climbing the ladder, you start to see what's at the top a little more clearly, or what's higher up anyway, a little more clearly. And sometimes you decide, gee, that's probably not what I wanted after all. Wonderful. Well, at least that's not something you had to mourn by the time you finished the PhD, because sometimes even I've known people that have done PhD programs and then realized the, the academic track probably isn't in, in the cards for them. And then they start to kind of question why did they even go down the path again the PhD in the first place I mean a lot of jobs that that PhDs end up doing I mean to be very honest didn't really require a PhD perhaps it, it's helpful to have a PhD but there's, there's more than enough people doing these jobs that don't have PhDs and that's something I guess a lot of PhDs have to wrestle with yeah that you're right I th my perspective is that's more common outside the sciences uh, but that's absolutely true uh, in sciences, I think that's less common to regret it just because there are still plenty of technical work to do outside. Um, but, you know, another perspective on that is that uh, the PhD, for me anyway, and I've talked to a lot of people who think this way as well, certainly there's a lot of technical training, but there's just a lot of kind of life choices that come out of that and where it points you in your, in your whole life. You know, my PhD, yes, it prepared me primarily for an academic career, I'm able to take a lot of those skills and leverage that in an industry job, plenty of them. But getting a PhD also defined a lot about how I think uh, about what I'm interested in, about the people I know. My, some of my best friends came out of that period. Uh, and so, yeah, I've never had any regrets at all about doing it, even though you could say, well, it sort of prepares you to be a professor and that's never what I ended up doing. Uh, I've been able to, to leverage a lot of that. I know a lot of PhDs are not able to, just like you say. Yeah, for sure. But you eventually you get your PhD. Of course, you know, as you mentioned, the goal at, at first was to, to be in academia, but then you saw that that was, probably wasn't going to happen. So you go mm -hmm. into industry instead. Was industry what you had expected it to be, especially since it wasn't what you initially was planning on doing? Yeah, uh, I, I guess I would say nominally, yes. But really, the more important statement, I think, is I didn't really know what to expect. I, I was never disappointed. I've, I've really enjoyed my career. And at, any at, at all times, I'm really glad I chose that path. So that is true. But I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, it became clear fairly quickly that 
working in industry is just different than academic research. And I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what would be required of me. I didn't really know how to get a job. You know, that was all very challenging. Uh, I mean, I, I think of it a lot like the conversation I had with my advisor when I told her that I was planning to go to industry. Uh, she said, you know, if you want a postdoc, which of course is the next step towards an academic career, I can help you. I have lots of connections and, and I knew she could. I knew, you know, she wanted to help. But she said, if you want to go into an industry, you're on your own. I don't know anything about it. I don't know anyone there. You know, I, I can't help you. And that was really kind of an indication of what that transition can be like for a lot of us in, coming out of sciences anyway. You're coming out of an environment where most people have no idea what is out in industry. They don't really even know what to expect. They certainly don't know how to transition into that and how to adapt and that's a lot of what I faced as well. That's that big challenge is actually the essence of the core of what I do now. That's that's the problem that I'm trying to solve with what I do with training science. Man, <laughs> so there's no jobs to, in, in academia, but your advisor is telling you she can help you get a postdoc. That's just prolonging the inevitable. I mean, now yeah. <laughs> you're 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 doing this postdoc. There's still no jobs. So what the hell am I doing a postdoc for? You're not helping me, lady. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. You know, I'm, I'm well known for my position on postdocs. A lot of people ask me and my, a lot of students will ask me, should I do a postdoc if I want a career in industry? And my typical answer is no, it's hell no. not going to help you. <laughs> there are a few cases where it might, but generally speaking, no, you're just delaying. You know, what really matters is to get out in industry and figure out how that works. People in industry will already look at you as having spent more time in academia than most people on the planet, right? That's what a PhD already, and, and staying there longer typically doesn't help. If you're going for a very research intensive career, like in pharma or certain chemical, you know, like uh, this big chemistry companies, maybe the postdoc could help. Typically though, no, much better to jump out there and figure out how the real world, how the private sector works. That's what people are looking for. Yeah, for sure, man. I know people have, you know, postdocs. I mean, they're supposed to be short, but a lot of times, sometimes you, you just one year turns into two, turns into three. It's like, come on, man. You like you need to get out there eventually. You just, like I said, you're you're, you're prolonging the inevitable. It's still not going to be a, an academic job for you at the end <laughs> at the end of this postdoc. So, yeah. when, it, when it comes to you even working in industry, what type of job did you do? Well, you know, that's evolved quite a bit. Uh, now, usually most of us, and myself included, end up in a pretty technical job to start because that's our expertise. You know, as you can imagine, most people, as you know, most people in the private sector don't have PhDs. And if you're coming in with a PhD in science or engineering, that really positions you to be a technical expert in some area. So what I started doing was I worked for a small laser company that was it was developing, the main thing was develop laser systems and products of different kinds. And so I was working on a laser that was going to be a scientific instrument. And that was my connection. I had come out of a research lab that bought lasers from companies and used them as tools for our experiment. My first job, I was actually developing one of those lasers to sell to scientists. And so that was kind of my edge. That was the connection. The research that I did was very fundamental and nothing that would be of interest in industry, but the tools that I worked with were the connection. And that's where I started. But, um, and so I was just working in a lab and working on developing these products. But as I often say, 
that was really interesting, but I, I started proverbially and maybe literally sticking my head out of the lab saying, this is cool lab work, but why are we doing this? And what is the customer doing with it? And what will we be developing next? And asking all of these other questions and my manager, I was fortunate to have a manager that said, okay, if you're interested in these other things, let's have you start visiting customers and let's expose you to more of the decisions about why are we developing this product and what will we do next? And that really started to lead into uh, leadership roles. You could say management, but really leading an entire project, having a team of engineers that would develop the product, helping to decide where it would go. Uh, and then that eventually led into more customer facing roles like business development, which is how can we, how can we find new customers and new applications for our technology and product management, which is really, it's related in what I do. Product management is really trying to find the right product that fits both the customer's need and also is the right product for the company is something that will be profitable and scalable. And so that's really the progression from a purely technical role up through some leadership roles uh, and into even customer facing and strategic kinds of roles. What was the biggest challenge that you faced moving from a technical role to a more leadership role? I think that was really, um, that's an excellent question. It's really learning that the way I think of it is that business is a game. You know, if you're just working in the lab, you're working on something that is primarily technical and it's still kind of the deterministic, scientific, you know, fact-based, you collect data, you proof things, you verify it. But as you move into more leadership and kind of general business roles, you're realizing a lot of things have to be done without that certainty that a scientist looks for. You know, a scientist poses a hypothesis and tries to disprove it, and, but is working towards something I mean, ideally, finally, a formula, something that is reliable. I can count on this formula. Every time I use it, it works the same. Industry, business doesn't work that way. And as you get out of the lab, you're just getting more into that area where there are no right answers. There are just too many things that can't be predicted. Now, it's not just the physics. Now, you're looking at customers and what they might want, how their businesses may change. You've got suppliers that may stop providing things. You've got macroeconomic conditions. You're working in a company that is a bunch of human beings with their own personal lives and things. Things are no longer predictable at all. And working in that environment is much less a formula and much more a game. And you have to step out of the, you have to be able to step out of the scientist's search for, for facts and truth and, and learn to play that game. Learn to persuade people, learn to make decisions without all the data and analysis you might like to have. That was the biggest challenge i think yeah i think you're, you're right on that one eventually you started turning you know turning science so eventually mm -hmm. you went from being uh you know working at, at working with like working for businesses to working for yourself was that something that you always had planned on doing it, not really no no not directly like that i wasn't exactly sure what i would do with it but it did stem from something that started about 10 years ago um so 10 in 20 in 2009 i was working for a small company uh it was procured, it was purchased by a larger company and then the site was shut down so all of a sudden 100 of us are without a job and in that period uh i wrote a book i found i ran into a publisher who helped me do this interview book turning science into things people need where i interviewed a bunch of scientists who went to work in industry and it was i don't know I mean, why did I do the book? It was something to do while I was looking for a job. 
it was a problem I was very interested in. This whole thing that I've mentioned a few times in this interview, a scientist transitioning in an industry, don't know what to expect, don't know what it's like. And I thought maybe this book would help address that. And I always thought that it would be interesting to have a speaking circuit, right? To have something to be able to go out and give talks about something. And a book is always a good thing for that. That's where it started. But after about six or seven years, it had grown enough. I was getting invited to speak internationally. I realized, yes, this is actually a problem as you know, as you were even aware, many PhDs, many scientists, many, they, they have to go get jobs in industry. They don't know what they will do. They don't know how to do it. It's a transition from the formula to the game. And I thought there's a real need for this. And I would find it very rewarding to do this full time. Uh, I can only really grow the business the way I want if I can put full time, my full time into it. If I'm doing it on the side while I have a job, I just can't develop it the way I want it. So it was about three years ago I decided to leave my job and do that. It's not really what I had foreseen to address your question, but it was sort of a reasonable path from starting that book 10 years ago and where I thought I might go. It was, I had a general concept of what I wanted to do, but not specifically starting my own company necessarily. As you know, David, we're, we're currently in a pandemic. How has the pandemic affected your business? Ooh, it's pretty significantly because uh, the primary thing that I do is travel and give workshops at mostly universities and sometimes at companies and then at conferences. And so that's, <laughs> you know, there's not much travel right now. In fact, I was in Europe with a whole spate of uh, workshops through April and May I was in Europe in March when things really started to heat up with COVID and, and I came home early and rescheduled everything. Um, so it's been a big impact. I've had to do things virtually now and figured out how to you know teach workshops, but a, a two day workshop is a little challenging virtually <laughs> online. You know, it's a long time to sit in front of your, your computer. So I've had to adapt that um, and learn some, you know, using, Zoom and other tools, how to uh, convert some of this. Uh, I'm looking forward to when I can travel again because I, there's some great virtual tools, but I still think an in-person workshop where you're working directly with somebody is still the best approach. Um, but one of the things I've done with the time, I realized back in about April that I was probably going to be spending a lot of time at home over the next six to eight months, and I decided to write another book. So <laughs> that's what I've, one of the things I've been working on. Oh, nice. So when it comes to the workshops that you do, so mm -hmm. is it you're, you're speaking to uh, college, not college, but uh, graduate students about their transition from academia to industry and what they can expect? Yeah, that's primarily it. There's there are a few different things I do, but that's primarily it. So um, I have one that is you know, how to be more employable in the private sector and over two days, we I, I'm talking to primarily PhD students who are maybe a year or two from graduating, or also postdocs actually, who, but all who all of whom are considering industry careers. And we talk about uh, what is it like in industry? How do you move industry? How do you make that transition? And it's not just about things like resumes and cover letters. I actually focus a lot more on what is the environment like? What will your manager expect from you? How do you help them see your strengths as a scientist? Because most people in industry don't just say, let's say we're talking to a physicist. Most people in industry don't say, you know what I need is a physicist because they think of them as doing science research. 
Uh, and so you have to help them understand what your value is. And that's a lot of what I do. I also do some, teach some workshops on, for academic researchers though, helping them collaborate with industry. It's a, it's a similar thing because if, if you're planning an academic research career, you still need to understand how does industry think if you're going to work with them. And I see that as not only a way of helping them get more research funding because research funding can be hard to get, but it's also a way of bridging this gap between what many people think of as two very different fields, academic research and industry. And I mean, they do function very differently, right? Research is about gaining knowledge. Industry is about creating a profit. But they don't have to be as different as a lot of people imagine them. There's, there's kind of a polarization effect that happens. And I see these workshops as helping to bridge that and say, you know, there's really a continuity here. Industry, find, it, the basic research that's done in academia is really important for industry because that's where new, new development comes from. And industry develops tools that academia uses and helps push research forward. And so there's a real synergy there. And we benefit if we see the two not as completely different and you either work in one or the other. And if you work in one, you think that's the best. And if you work in the other, you think that's the best, but they're two different, two different areas that really need to partner and, and things work best when there's that synergy that's developed. So those are the things I work on. How do you get a career in industry? How does industry work and how can academic researchers uh, collaborate with industry? That second piece though, how academics collaborate with industry was really smart on your part to, to, to kind of tackle that issue because I think a lot more universities are seeing the benefit of it. I'm not just focusing on the, the basic research, but what is the application of this basic research? So many companies are now being spun out of universities just based mm -hmm. on the work being done in labs. So that was smart what you, what you ended up doing and, and I got thank, thank you. you for that. So when it comes to, to public speaking, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you've been, you can go around, you speak to, to various audiences, and hopefully you get to do that again soon. With, yeah. Of course, you know, everyone's dealing with virtual right now. But mm -hmm. when it comes to just giving presentations in front of people, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what did you do to get better at it? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess it's not something I ever felt I really struggled with. So I can't really say, ah, oh, yes, I had problems with it. And here's how I overcame that. I would not say I was always great at it. Um, but I guess there wasn't any big fear that I had to overcome. Uh, you know, it's funny, one of the things, though, that I think probably helped is before I really started doing much speaking, uh, I've been a musician most of my life. I, I play the guitar and sing, and I played in bands, rock bands, since, you know, college, high school, actually. And I began to, as I started speaking more, I, <laughs> this may sound funny, I realized what I was doing, what, I, what worked well was to think of it as a performance. You know, not that I'm putting on a show per se, but that just standing there and trying to relay facts or bullet points, that's not really the best way to communicate. And if I can demonstrate the passion I have for my career and the excitement I have for the potential that all the people in my workshop have and what they could go off and do in, out in the private sector, you know, in developing new things that help people, that is exciting. And if I can interact with them on that level, it wasn't so different than being on stage and interacting with the crowd and, you know, it gets their energy level up and we have a kind of a relationship, if you will, a connection. I found that 
helped me feel more comfortable with it. It actually helped me, I think, uh, communicate in a way that worked better. Um, so, uh, you know, that and the other thing I had to work on is I think I have a tendency to speak too fast. And so I had to slow down a little. But uh, those two things kind of helped me. I didn't have to overcome a, a real fear. But uh, I think the fact that you know, I started this when I was further into my career. It was something that I really understood and believed in. And that gave me the confidence to be able to go out and say, here is this important thing that will be valuable for you and not feel overly uncertain or insecure about doing that. When it comes to putting your presentations together, do you have a process for doing so? And if so, what is it? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I guess I do. Not a really formal one. I mean, it, I actually find it really exciting to have a new idea. I think of it as a new module for my workshop. So I'd start with a new idea and think, for example, you know, I bet they'd be interested in what are some steps that these students could do right now while they're still graduate students to prepare? That must be a great question. This is really cool. And so I would start with an outline and I'd, I'd say, well, well, first of all, I always like to start with you know, what is the goal of the module? What do I want the participants to think? What do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do from that? And that helps me focus where the presentation is going. And then I'll take notes, kind of an outline that says, well, what are some of the details that I want to put into it, the bullet points and things? And then I'll start to develop slides. For most of what I do, I'm still using PowerPoint slides, but I've really moved to I, I, a lot more graphics and very little text on a slide. And this is sort of consistent with the performance approach that I talked about. I really try and convert it into something that truly comes from, you know, here. I don't need slides to remind me. I, I try to structure it in a way that it just flows. So, you know, I could almost uh, ad lib what it is and you know there's a few key points and the slides remind me of the exact sequence I want to go through it but um, and so I develop it from there and I really focus on more graphics and few words and think what are the things that I can convey that would be good takeaways that's that's sort of a process it's not you know a written down process step by step exactly but that's the kind of approach that I take yeah I'm a big fan of, of using more graphics and less text too and the big, the big reason for that is when you have a lot of text on a slide, people will read it. And if they're reading, then they're not listening to you. And ultimately, yes. you're up there for people to, to listen to what you're saying as opposed to just reading about what you're right. saying. Yeah, so yeah, I'm a big fan of that too. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think that's much easier to do when you're talking about something that comes from you. You know, if we think of doing a book report back in grade school, for example, there, somebody gave you something, you had to research it and go talk about it. Well, you didn't really know it. But if you're talking about something you truly know, and you put yourself into it, and, and say, what would I like to communicate? That's actually far easier to talk about and present. Because one, you know what the topics are. You don't need Hopefully, you don't need many cues on your slides. You don't need a lot of text, and you can just relay it. And you're absolutely right. If there's a graphic or a simple phrase on the slide to help center them, but you are telling your story and they are listening to you, that is much more powerful. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> It'd be kind of funny if you needed a whole lot of text to talk about yourself. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. I know me really well. I, I, could, I could say it off the top. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot. I just don't remember any of it. So yeah, I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> it's like, I don't believe this person, man. This person, they, they, they're lying. They're so, <laughs> I mean, that's a great point, right? That you, you know, we're kind of joking about this, but you're making a really good point. If somebody is presenting something and all the words are on the slide, I know I have a tendency to think, do they really know what they're talking about? But if the person has a graphic or a few words and they're just talking to me, that enhances the credibility so much, right? It's kind of the flip side of what we are joking about, that if you don't need all that, you come across as much more credible. No, no question. You've offered a lot of, of great tips for helping people become more effective in public speaking, David. I really like the one of thinking of a, of a, public, of a presentation as a performance and then also having more graphics and, and less text on slides. Are there any other tips you could offer in helping people become better at public speakers? You know, the other thing I do, so I, I do have a process I have uh, for, for uh, performing, presenting. I actually, that's where I do have a process. And I, I have lots of notes and things, but on my, my MacBook and my, it goes to my iPad, I actually have uh, sort of a getting in character well, I, so I have a process that I go through, you know, the day before, what do I make sure I have in place, you know, the slides, the location, things like that, just so I make sure everything's there. And then the things that I do right beforehand, you know, everywhere from, do I have my pointer? Do I have business cards out? Simple things like that. But one of the more important ones is I actually have a get in character step. Because I realize, well, if I think of this as a performance, not that I'm not being genuine, but, you know, we have different ways of interacting. In this case, I have something I want to communicate. And so I actually had, get in character and I stand, I put my shoulders back and I breathe deeply a couple times. And uh, I just think, okay, I'm, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be stressed about this. I don't need to convince anyone of anything. What I'm really just trying to do is relay what I think is important, what has been important to me. And if I get in touch with that, that helps. And then I actually, I recite out loud um, uh, that slow is smooth and smooth is fast, which is a kind of a, uh, a phrase that I think is supposed to come from military somewhere. I don't remember where I picked it up, but it reminds me to speak slowly. And it reminds me to use the space in, in you know, the silence in, in your speech can be as powerful as anything, especially if you're, you're not just conveying a bunch of facts, but you're trying to, uh, you know, convey something important. The time that you might take to pause and let them actually ponder things before you move on, this is important. And it's not what came naturally to me. So this reminds me uh, to speak slowly and uh, I, I find that it just helps a lot to, to center me before I actually begin a presentation to, to think about what I'm doing and where I am, not rush too much. Yeah, that's, that's a good point of speaking slowly, especially it's helpful for people perhaps whose first language is in English. So you're, you're, a, you're a, a person that, you know, as a, as a foreigner, maybe that's not your first language. Slowing down the speaking is certainly helpful to those types. That's actually, you know, that's a great point. That's actually what made me first think about that because when I started traveling internationally, I needed to slow down. 
Uh, I've been to places where uh, English is certainly not their first language. And if I wanted to be understood, I needed to make sure I spoke clearly, didn't use too much jargon, uh, too many idioms, uh, gave them space to process. And that, and I realized that's just better overall, yeah. even when I'm speaking here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Well, this has been really interesting learning more about you, David. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, so my uh, website, turningscience.com, is the best place to find me. And you can contact me from that, or you can email me at uh, dgiltner, first initial last name, at turningscience.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, easy to find, David Giltner. Uh, and I also have a YouTube channel on YouTube. If you look at Turning Science, and my last name is the best way to find that. Uh, lots of uh, videos about private sector careers is really what it's about. Wonderful. Well, everybody, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. I'm Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's an online public speaking course. Consider checking it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and please stay safe. Thanks, David. Thanks, Neil.